testing? You're getting a So this is, uh, I'm talking to John Bell for the second time and we're picking up from having uh, got to the point where we had agreement between AstraZeneca and the university and the government. Yeah, so, so I have to go back to go forward Fine. because the, what, what became very clear during the month of February as the disease took off in Lombardy in Italy that, the, that we were likely to have a really bad pandemic. So this is February 2020. Exactly. Yeah. And that, you could, it was interesting because I spent a lot of time looking at the curves and the numbers of cases and you could see the curve in, in Lombardy which went like that. And if you just went back about six weeks, we were just here and we were following the curve exactly so you knew it was going to happen. And the, the health service hadn't yet sprung into action. Um, not that it ever would, I don't think, but anyway, the, the health system was largely unprepared for trouble. And there were a set of things that were of real concern. One was PPE, where despite the fact of knowing something was coming from early in January, they made no effort to fix the PPE problem. That was going to be a catastrophic problem, which it turned out to be. And I didn't have anything to do with that. I stayed completely away from that. Oh, actually, that's not entirely true. I did take a big shipment of PPE from friends in Hong Kong who rang me up and said, we got it, you're in trouble. Do you mind if you want a container full of PPE? I said, yes, please. So anyway, but that, that's a side. The, the second one was ventilators. And everybody knew you were going to need a lot of ventilators. And the Italians had started to run out of ventilators. So we kept thinking, yeah, it's probably not so good. So the government decided to launch a competition for ventilators in the hope that they would be able to find a design for a ventilator that would work and that we could make here, because they didn't have enough ventilators, basically. And I, I was not directly involved in competition, but I was very directly involved in thinking about the ventilator solution. And indeed, in the middle of March, at the end of March, I called the Chen Zhu, who used to be the Minister of Health in China, who's an old colleague, and I called him up and said, we need ventilators. So he said, no, no, we'll get your ventilators. So they lined up a big shipment of ventilators for the UK. And then I passed that through to number 10, and they, actually number 10 were on the call with me, I think. And that, uh, and, and meanwhile, they were running this competition. The, the competition, in the end, got to a completion, but they never, they never activated because they turned out they had enough ventilators, so anyway, that was the end of that. But there was a very good ventilator done by the engineers here, which I thought was one of the best in play, and I helped them a bit to get it in the right place. But in the end, they never got their ventilators uh, deployed, but it was another problem. And then the third thing was testing. And I was involved in a meeting, I guess, the second or third week of March, with the team from Number 10 and a small group of people from PHE and... Um, and DHSC, and because it was pretty clear, and the WHO had even said it, if you don't have testing, you're done, because you don't know who's going and done that. At that stage, we didn't know that at least half the people were going to be asymptomatic with the Wuhan strain. So we didn't know that, but if, if it was true, and we know from flu that a large number of people are often asymptomatic, so if it was like flu, we were going to be in really big trouble if we had no testing. So I was at a meeting where we were trying to work out the testing strategy and we ascertained that the whole of the NHS, the whole of the NHS, were managing about 4,000 tests 
a day. Actually, I think we did this. Okay, all right, okay, we've done this. Okay, that's fine. We did, did we do the Lighthouse Labs? Yes, we did the Lighthouse Okay, fine, okay. So roll that on, that's all good. So yeah. that's fine, that's yeah. okay. Yeah. So then, then lots of vaccine stuff, done a deal with Pascal, ready to go. Pascal's then launched off to try and find global manufacturers for the vaccine, which he did unbelievably well. Signed a deal with Serum Institute within about a week of signing the deal with us. Serum Institute is the big global player in vaccine production, so that was really exciting. Um, that's in India. It's in India, yeah, yeah that's right. And, uh, and actually at its peak, Serum Institute was producing 250 million doses a month of our vaccine, which is, if you think about it, is eye-watering amounts of vaccine. So, so these, they really did do what they said they were going to do, so that was good. And, and, and of course, I was tracking now the phase two trial, which Andy had done his phase one, has now moved into phase two. <coughs> and of course, during the course of that spring, there was quite a lot of disease in the UK, so we were quite optimistic we were going to get a signal. We thought there would be a signal by September based on the prevalence of cases, but everybody was pretty wary about the if the if the pandemic goes away, then you don't get an answer by yes, September, yes. Mm -hmm. and that's what happened. Yeah. So you'll remember that first summer, the disease largely went away in the summer. Yes, and and as a result, they were reliant now on Brazil, where they were having a wave in July, August, September, but it, the whole thing was a bit awkward actually, and and then there were multiple events over that period that were complicated. They had a lady in the trial who developed a transverse myelitis and inflammation and and Andy quite rightly stopped the trial. Um, and the MHRA looked at it, single case, transverse myelitis happens in young women, what to do the vaccine, who knows? They thought about it, was fine, she was getting better, put on steroids, all fine, back in action. So that was all complicated. But the problem with that was that the Americans who hated this vaccine because it wasn't an American vaccine, decided that they would put a full hold on the AstraZeneca trial, which AstraZeneca had now started, and which was going to be one of our key pivotal trials for approval in America. And the Americans said, no, no, you've had a case of transverse myelitis, you've got to stop the trial. And instead of doing what the MHRA did, which was say, look, who knows, let's keep going. And to be clear, there were no other cases of transverse myelitis throughout all the trials. Um, they paused the AstraZeneca trial for six weeks, which actually is pretty unethical, actually, if you want to know the truth. In fact, it was very, very bad behavior. And AstraZeneca was in, then in a series of scraps with the American um, hierarchy. Operation Warp Speed, which has been set up by Trump to accelerate the development of vaccines, was accelerating the development of the American vaccines and holding up AstraZeneca at every turn uh, with a whole load of ridiculous inputs that just didn't make any sense at all. It was run by a guy named Monsef Slawi, who had run vaccines at GSK, and I'd often wondered whether he had a grudge about AstraZeneca being the, in the lead rather than GSK. Anyway, that's a separate issue, but the, anyway, he was, that was, that was very bad behavior. And, um, and the American press were being pretty negative about it and saying, well, it's bad. And by the way, they hated the fact that it was a not-for-profit vaccine. Yes, yes. They really hated it. And they said, well, the, you know, the, the only successful vaccines are going to be ones where people make a lot of money because the money drives the innovation. It turns out not to be true. 
So anyway, so that was so that was pretty bumpy all the way through the summer, um, and that obviously that caused a lot of questions and challenges, and we had to work quite closely with AstraZeneca to manage all that stuff. And I was meeting with them weekly with Mene and Pascal and Andy Pollard, and I were, were on the phone and saying, "What do we do about this? What do we do about that?" That, and then there was lots of tricky um, communications issues, as you might imagine, because everybody wanted to know about the vaccine, but they also wanted to know if there were any problems with the vaccine. So it was, it was the usual press melee. And, th and then uh, as we got through the end of the summer, then there was excitement was growing because we thought we might get a readout of the vaccine fairly soon. And the, the way that works is you have a safety monitoring committee that sees the cases as they come in and they're either in the placebo group or they're in the treated group. And once you get to a certain number of cases, you can then look to see if it's 50-50, in which case it hasn't worked, or whether it's 70-30, in which case it has worked, or whether it's 90-10 and all that stuff. And so we, we had expected a result late September, but of course we didn't know, and Andy didn't know, nobody knew on our end, it was all data was going in, but, but we did know it was gonna be slower because of the lack of UK cases. And then that ground on a bit through the autumn until I guess late October when the news of the Pfizer vaccine, which was either late October or early November, but it was about that time, their result came through because they had had a much bigger trial. Their trial was 40 or 50,000 people in America where the disease was rife. So they got lots of cases and they had a great result. Um, with very high levels of efficacy, 90 some percent efficacy. Uh, and so everybody said, wow, we, you know, there will be a vaccine. Now the problem with that vaccine, of course, is it had to be handled at minus 80 degrees. Yes. You could never get it to the developing world. And they were charging a ton of money for it. So it kind of didn't meet any of our criteria for what we wanted to achieve, but it was a good vaccine. And so we knew at that point that things were gonna be okay, probably. And, and, um, and I was famously asked by Sarah Montague on the back of that whether I thought things would be okay by the spring. And I did say that they would be. Mm. Um, and this was, I, I made a note because you, you had a comment to the Select Committee on Science and Technology. This whole epidemic has relied too heavily on assumptions that have turned out not to be true. My strong advice is to be prepared for the worst. <laughs> so that, that was, I think that was the most downbeat I ever heard you be. And yeah, after that, yeah, you started yeah. being chirpy. more on the optimistic end. Yeah, chirpy, chirpy. That's exactly right. And I, and actually what's interesting is I, she said, by the spring, or we're going to be getting back to normal. And I said, I said, yes, 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 we will. And that got broadcast everywhere. It keeps being broadcast even to this day. And it turns out that actually I was probably right. And the only thing, because that, that corresponds to exactly there on my graph, had we paid attention to the data. Which is a massive, sorry, I'm just saying that on the graph, this is a massive fall off in the number of, exactly. of deaths. Of deaths. And, and so what, it, what I think, and to be clear, I didn't know this when I said that, but what has now become apparent is it had this massive impact on the most severe form of the disease, which is that terrible inflammatory pneumonia that put lots of old people face down in a hospital on a ventilator. Um, and that was almost completely eliminated by two doses of, of any of the three big vaccines. So, so that was 
marvelous, actually. So I thought, okay, here we go. This is going to be great. Uh, let's wait and see. Moderna reported about two weeks later, same sort of data. And then about two weeks later, Andy called me up on the weekend and said, we better get together because the data is now in. And I knew if he called me that we had a result because they wouldn't have that we wouldn't have had a result. So I said, oh, okay, well, that's fine. So we had a long chat on Sunday night and the data was pretty good, but, but not easy to interpret in the mm -hmm. sense that there were several groups of patients that were different because of the way the vaccine had been given. In one group, there had been a low dose and a normal yeah, dose. Yeah. And, yes. and, and anyway, you, you know that, so, Andy, that's yes. right, yeah. So, and Andy will explain to you what had actually happened. And, but the, you know, the good news is at its best, it was 90% and at, a, at, at its worst, it was 60%. And that's still a fantastic result. A massive lead. Yeah, yeah we, were, we were hoping for 60%. I have to say, that's, I kept thinking, if we got 60%, it'd be amazing. So that was fab. And, and of course, the other thing, which of course emerged as we interrogated the data, was the interdose interval it turned out to be crucially important. And the 60% the, the was a four week interdose interval, which is the worst interval you can have. Six is better, eight is better, 10 is better, 12 is better. So as we got better, of course, the, the, the results got better and better. And, and I, I did make the point, and I think I made this point on Radio 4 over that period. I said, look, first of all, it's not, a, it's not, it's not a, an Olympic 100-meter race. We're not competing against anybody. We're just trying to get vaccines out and terrific work from everybody because it's great. But just go a bit carefully trying to compare this vaccine to that vaccine because the truth is, they were different trials. They were done in different groups of people. The endpoints are completely different. And now that turned out to be a very wise observation because if the endpoint had been severe pneumonia leading to death, we would have been equally good as any of the other vaccines. If it was a head cold and a bit of a cough, they might've been a bit better than we were and so on and so forth. Mm. And I also said, look, you know, we still don't know the rules of the road. So, and we also don't know how durable the vaccines are gonna be. So, you know, be careful because if, they only last three months, it's not much help to you. So, and then, of course, all that's played out. It turns out that none of the vaccines are very durable and none of the vaccines stop transmissions and none of the vaccines stop you getting a head cold. And they're very bad against various forms of the variant of the virus. But they fix that problem, which is the win, because that's actually what we were trying to do. The, the problem of the People severe dying. illness. And that's right, that, I, I, exactly. So that, I mean, that was hugely exciting. And then, of course, over the course of the next three months, we started to get lots of real-world data in from what was really happening in people who'd been vaccinated. And that data showed that our vaccine was within a couple of percentage points, the same as the RNA vaccines. And you can give you all this stuff. Um, so um, so that, was, that was a very interesting time. But it, you know, it had its, all its challenges. So we, we, you know, the Russians took a run at us. They said, if you had the vaccine, you'd turn into a monkey because it was challenge vector. Do you remember that? It was in the Times and all that stuff. And then, and then we had, then of course, Pascal, this massive fight with the Europeans, which was entirely bad behavior from the Europeans, beginning to end, it wasn't Pascal's fault at all. He'd spoken to me earlier in the autumn and said, oh, JB, he said, I, now I understand why you guys did Brexit. I'm trying to negotiate with the bloody Europeans. It's a complete nightmare. Because they were trying to procure in a classical European procurement mode. And he was trying to say, if you want some vaccines, get your name on the bloody list because everybody else wants a vaccine. And then, of course, when it when the vaccine actually then was approved, and the Europeans said, "Well, where's our 200 million doses?" He said, "Well, I can't give you 200 million doses. I can give you 
40 million doses, whatever the number was, which incidentally was as a percentage, at least as much as they were going to get from Pfizer and more, much more than they were going to get from J&J. But despite that, I think again, because of the Brexit UK thing, they could see that the UK was rolling out this massive vaccine program, largely based on our vaccine. And they were going, well, hang on man, what about us? And Pascal said, sorry, you guys, they signed an agreement in July. You waited forever to sign it and we're doing it as fast as we can. So you'll have to stay calm. So that was ugly. And then there was a lot of bad social media, mostly driven by the Russians again, which talked the vaccine down. M Macron said it couldn't be used in the over 55s. And then it said, well, it can only be used in the over 55s. And then he said, I'm not having it. And then he said, well, I've already had it. So, I mean, he was a complete idiot. Angela Merkel and the Paul Ehrlich Institute in Germany were also completely hopeless because they had decided because they had their own German vaccine, that they didn't want any buzz about the antivirus. So they caused lots of trouble with misinformation, even a statement that the vaccine had an 8% efficacy level. And I, I mean, Andy has never been able to work out where that number came from, but it, somebody just dreamt it up, I think, it was in all the newspapers. So that, that was tough. Uh, uh, but the good news was MHRA responded immediately, got the approval, end of the first week of January, they started to roll out the vaccine, and then you know, AstraZeneca was great about providing 5 million doses a week. Uh, that was really fab, actually. Oxford Biomedica, another star performer, best production on the planet. Um, well, actually, volume-wise, it was Serum Institute, but speed-wise, it was mm. Oxford Biomedica. So that was great. The only people who couldn't produce the vaccine were the Americans, who were trying to make it, and they couldn't make it. And they couldn't make the J&J vaccine either, which is quite interesting. Uh, and and the, then the plant in Belgium, which is the European plant, they couldn't make it either. So, so all our raw raw that you got from America was, you know, specious because the truth is they didn't, you know, they didn't know the first thing about CMC and all that stuff. So they looked pretty stupid. But nevertheless, the UK program went terrifically well. They rolled it out. Nadim Zahawi, star, I knew him from the OLS government thing. He's such a good guy. Um, set the program up, took it out of the NHS, did it as a separate program, which is the right thing to do. And off they went. So that, now, then about mid-March, we got a few reports of sagittal vein thrombosis, a form of stroke, but a venous stroke. Clustered in Northern Europe, mostly Norway, um, Denmark, and Germany. And at first, we thought, okay, because we'd seen a bit here, and it was very difficult to know whether it was above background levels. Yeah, yeah. And we, we, because the numbers were so small, we just didn't know. But when more cases started to be reported, there was a question whether it was an ascertainment bias or whether it was a real problem. But as the cases started to mount up, we kept thinking, mm, it's probably a real problem, so we better just go have a look. Then we had a whole load of people looking at, vaccine registries and then adding up everything that they could find that had happened to people who had a vaccine, mm -hmm. which was a massive overestimate of what was going on. But fortunately, a few sensible people looked and it looked like this had a, this had a prevalence of about one in a hundred thousand and it had a mortality of about one in a million, which in the context of a national vaccine program is perfectly acceptable, particularly when you saw the mortality. From the, anyway, that, that, of course, that developed its own momentum, revved up by the press, 
caused all kinds of trouble, created huge amounts of vaccine hesitancy in various bits of the world, which is not very helpful, and turned out to be uh, you know, an impediment for the vaccine. But they, the decision taken by the government, which I think was a good decision, was to just give the vaccine to people over the age of 40 and avoid it going into younger people and women in particular. Because, of course, we had RNA vaccines, which didn't have that liability. So, and that was a good decision. And both Andy and I agreed that for the vaccine, it was the best possible thing. Because what you really want to do is give the vaccine to people who are going to die, not people who are 16 years old and going to school who you don't want to spread the vaccine around. So I, we said, well, that's fine. You want to put RNA vaccines into those guys. Good luck to you. Because we want our vaccine to be used to stop people from dying. So the majority of our vaccine globally has actually gone into the high-risk populations, which is quite interesting. And that means that the tally of lives saved gets better and better. Because mm. once you know the Americans are now on their fifth dose, you'll be saving no lives in people who are on their fifth dose of vaccine. Pfizer will be making lots of money, but there will be no lives saved. So, so that basically is that you know that's sort of part of the. I think it was part of the philosophy that yeah, we thought. Yeah. Well, we're not making any money, so mm. let's forget that. How do we get it out? Uh, and then we started to run into trouble because India decided they had a big problem. We'd always worried about India because lots of people with comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension, fairly elderly population. There was a worry about ethnic liability and that South Asians were particularly liable. I, that story is not really held up, but anyway, we were worried about it. And so the Indian government said, well, you know, Serum Institute's great, but and we know most of that, half that vaccine is intended to go to Africa, but we're not going to let it go. We're going to give it to everybody in India. So they embargoed the plant. And then I knew we had a problem because that meant Africa was going to get nothing because you couldn't use the RNA vaccines in mm. Africa. And J&J was still months behind in terms of... We, we haven't mentioned COVAX in all this. So the COVAX were the guys deploying the vaccine. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. So, so that, and they had relied very heavily on AstraZeneca for all the right reasons. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, they were stuck as well because they didn't have any vaccine supply from India. Mm -hmm. So we shipped them a bit of vaccine back and forth from other places. But they, you know, on the whole, they didn't have much. And that was made worse by the fact that the South Africans decided that they didn't like the vaccine either. And so they shipped back. They had X million doses and they shipped them back to headquarters saying we don't want the vaccine which again was a completely stupid decision because they were... Back to India? Back no, to they went back to Geneva because oh, that right. was where COVAX had shipped them from. Yeah. So, uh, and again, that was, it was not, you know, it's all, this was all, there was all this stuff going on and so that it, it caused lots of trouble. So, so that, so Africa was basically unvaccinated, so they were completely exposed. And, and in fact, in the end, although they're vaccinating at reasonable rates at the moment, they protected themselves by natural infection, which caused lots of deaths in South Africa, but not that many deaths in places like Nigeria, which is interesting and nobody really understands that. Maybe ascertainment or maybe something else, mm. nobody really knows. Mm. So all that was going on as well at, at the same time. Uh, and it was, a, you know, it was a pretty bumpy journey because mm. we, we, we set up a big program in Eswatini. So Eswatini, the South Africans said, we don't want the vaccine. And Eswatini said, well, you may not want the vaccine. We want the vaccine. So Annie and I set up a program there to vaccinate the whole population. And then subsequently, we've been working with Zimbabwe, Uganda, Tanzania, Ghana, a whole variety of African mm. countries. So the, the, the vaccine is still being manufactured and 
still still being distributed. Yeah, yeah, still be, yeah, still being distributed. Although there is now a massive surplus of vaccine. Is it being used in the UK at all at the moment? No, no. no, no the UK stopped when they got to the booster, and I don't think it's being used at all in the UK, yeah. which is fine. You know, because remember, it's the first two doses that make a difference. All the rest of this stuff is just yes, that's the that's what the booster did. It did absolutely nothing. So, so I so I think it's all you know I'm relaxed about it. It's not not a big deal. But we were also then getting Nepal blue, so we had to get them vaccine. Thailand blue. Well, fortunately, we had a site in Thailand which I'd helped set up the manufacture, so they started going. Malaysia blue, Indonesia got into trouble, and you know the AstraZeneca vaccine was used pretty widely in all those places. So, so it was a pretty it was pretty good run. And I'm going to have to go. Yeah, <laughs> we've got sorry, to, we've got to. Yeah, because I've got. I'm sorry. I've got a lunch at. Yeah, yeah, sure. Twelve thirty. Okay. Is that all right? That's fine. Thank that, you.